Welcome everyone to Web Sleuths Radio Podcast, and do we have a show for you. Now, Laura is a private investigator. She's known as the serial killer whisperer. I mean, she's our woman. We love her. For the last six years, Laura's traveled to San Quentin's death row to interview Lawrence Bittaker, who is one of the two men known as the toolbox killers. Over the years, Bittaker developed trust in Laura, gave her information about the murders that he had never revealed to anyone before. Now, just a few months ago, on December 13, 2019, Lawrence Bittaker died at the age of 79. His co-defendant, Roy Norris, died on February 24, 2020, at the age of 72. Both men were convicted of some of the most terrible, awful serial murders in history. So why would a woman want to know a serial killer and even let him call her on her cell phone? You're going to find out. Please welcome Laura Brand to Webster's Radio Podcast. Welcome, Laura. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Oh, I'm just, like I, I told you uh, off air, I am so thrilled to talk to you, and we're, we're going to jump right into it, okay? Yeah, so, <laughs> dive right in. So, uh, you're a member of Websleuths, which just tickles me to no end. How long have you been a member, and why did you join? Um, oh, it's so wild. I actually joined because of Bittaker and this entire case. Um, wow. <laughs> I've followed you guys for a while. Like, I'm a huge fan. I love the work that you guys do oh, on the site. You. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, you're solving murders and Jane Doe's and missing persons. So, well, thank it's you. It's just an incredible organization. I appreciate that. And we love having you. Again, we have a, what, almost 140,000 members now. So uh, it's it's interesting to see the work that the members are doing. I, I People will say, oh, you do such a great job on Websleuths. I'm like, hey, man, I put my feet up and I watch the members do all the work. They're so smart. So thank you. Anyway, so what kind of work did you do as a PI before you started talking to serial killers? <laughs> it's actually so funny. I actually started with the serial killers. Oh, yeah. I had started going to school and I had developed a study and that, so the PI work was a causation from studying serial killers. Uh-huh. Um, so the study I have, it's going to be out probably in a year from now. Mm-hmm. I just partnered with Dr. White on it, but pretty much it's a collective study, kind of like what you would see on Mindhunter. What they did is going in and you're asking a certain amount of questions. You're putting it together. You're analyzing the data. And uh, we're actually developing a scale for our study, so we're going to be able to measure the results and the findings of it. Mm-hmm. But that's how it started, and that's what actually led me to San Quentin and actually sitting down with Bittaker. And ironically, Bittaker is not in the study. He refused to do the study or answer any of the questions. But, wow. Um, it was when I went to San Quentin for one of my rounds of interviews with him. That's when he had given me the placement for Cindy and Andrea, the two missing girls that are still up in the San Gabriel Mountains. Okay, and I want to talk to you more about your research, and we'll do that a little bit later. But let's let's stick with Bittaker. So it's just so odd that he would uh, become close to you, but refuse to to be a part of this project. That's didn't you yeah. find that odd? Oh, I did. Yeah. And, and people are like, so he must have been your number one guy for the study. It was like, he actually refused to do it. That's so <laughs> weird. So, I know. I, okay. But, Norris, um, his partner, is in the study. Okay. Well, let's, let's just talk about Let's just take it kind of step by step. You ask him to be in the study. He says no. 
how did this relationship blossom then? Oh God, you know, it was three years. It was, um, he didn't want to talk to me at all. He was shutting me down at every turn and I just kept pursuing and pursuing and pursuing him. And, you know, it was finally, I guess, all that persistence of he, I kept trying and I kept going back to San Quentin to see him and sit down with him. You know, I think that persistence of all those years really, um, finally the dam broke and I was able to <laughs> finally get him to open up but when and start you... to reveal steps about the crime, about where the girls are and where the buried evidence is placed. When you said you kept going back to San Quentin, he would just refuse to see you and have to just turn around and no, go and home? What's strange is every time I went um, and I would mark him down, I would go in and see him. He would come down every single time. He never refused um, a visit. Mm -hmm. But then he just, what would you talk about? Did he just start talking? He didn't just start talking about what he, um, you know, what he, what he did. Did you just talk about his life? Talk about him? Oh yeah. Like I'll always start with like the childhood Mm -hmm. with them. You know, I want to hear about their childhood. You know, the relationship they have with their parents, their mother specifically, I, I always hone in on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just tell them to tell me stories, you know, good stories, bad stories about the childhood. I want to know everything. And then, you know, I'll just work up to the young adult life. You know, I want to hear about their teenagers, who was their first crush, their mm-hmm. first love, their first rejection. You know, I'm really honing in on those different key aspects. Um, and then I'll work my way up into later in life, you know, college, beyond type of years, the early 20s, mid 20s. Um, and then I'll focus in on the sexual fantasies. How did they develop? Where did they develop? How did they um, feel what happened during the crimes? And put it all kind of into a big picture. But I work my way slowly, slowly up, literally from their childhood all the way up to the crimes and post-conviction. Let, well, let's talk about the, uh, the childhood of Mr. Bitteker. It's always fascinating to hear about a serial killer's childhood because that's when something happens to turn them into these monsters later. What did he tell you that pointed pointed to you saying, okay, now I get it. Now I see what happened. This is why he went this direction. What things did he tell you? Well, he had a very, very, um, unique and very different childhood. His mother, you know, had him very young. She had another son right after him. Um, but she gave both of the boys up for adoption mm-hmm. when Bitteker was about like two or three. And they were adopted within the family, but separately. They were both adopted to distant, distant aunt and uncles, but within the family. So Bitteker was adopted by the Bittakers. And they had moved around a lot. They changed a lot of jobs. Um, but he primarily grew up in uh, Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, but he lived uh, kind of on the outside, like very rural areas, and he didn't have any reaction um, interaction with children, like other children his age. And even in his teenage years, he was very shy. He had no social skills. Nothing was really developed. And the, I guess the adoptive parents, um, they tried really hard to get him to play with other kids. I've seen reports of like, they would really try to get him out there to socialize with him, and it just never seemed to work. And, you know, I do see a lot of the uh, social disconnect. And even when I was interviewing him, he he's very socially awkward. Mm-hmm. He didn't know how to have a conversation. And I was even surprised, you know, at 70 years old, and he's had a lot of human interaction, but he has no idea how to have a conversation or even have a normalized conversation with a human. 
Um, and that's something I always focused it on from his childhood. Is it possible? Because I, uh, I'm not a doctor, but I always pretend I am. It's just in my head. I have a doctor and all of that. Um, it sounds like you're describing somebody that perhaps could be on the autism scale, maybe. I mean, it's possible. Um, but I think he's just, I, he's not somebody I would put there personally. Mm -hmm. And so why do you think, I mean, what was his problem? Sounds like he just really couldn't interact with people, let alone a little kid not playing with little kids. That's troublesome. It you is. Know? It is. And, you know, you have to factor in the antisocial personality. Right. I mean, that was present there, too. Um, so, you're, you know, you're kind of having a perfect storm kind of mix it and start to play. You have somebody who doesn't have the social interaction. You have the antisocial personality come in. Then you have, um, you know, a hard rejection, you know, mm -hmm. in their teenage years. Um, and then more just keeps following. And, you know, you see the perfect storm forming into a tornado as you start to go. And so and he, you, yeah. you feel that he was an antisocial personality disorder, but it was, do you think he was born with it? it? It just developed because of the rejection as he got older trying to fit in? You know, I think it's hard to say mm -hmm. um, because, you know, he did have a very neglectful childhood, so it could have been you know, something, it's a, it could be a learned behavior, it could have been something he's born with, it's really hard to say, um, whether so, or not, which it was, you what, know, because of his childhood, and how he, you know, he was neglected, so, you know, he could have built up walls as he went on through life, and, um, you know, that's the question of, is he a psychopath, or is he a sociopath, pretty right. much. You say he had a neglectful childhood, I got the impression first that, you know, somebody that adopted a baby, would not be well, neglectful, but what happened? So, and you know what? Um, I wouldn't say it was the adoptive parents, but what was really interesting is when Bittaker would talk to me, he would only talk about the birth mother that gave him up really? and the rejection from the birth mother. And he would always say to me, you know, if she had kept me and she had loved me, I would have never turned out this way. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, mm -hmm. but you said he had a neglectful childhood. What, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, when his parents would work, they would leave him on his own a lot, and he would just wander into the woods and just pretty much normalize stuff, I would say. Like, I did the same thing as a kid when he described it to me. He's like, I go pick up frogs. I'm like, yeah, I went to the woods, see that kind of stuff. But then it was, um, I would say, neglectful because they would leave him in his room at night and never check on him. And this is actually when he would crawl out his bedroom window and he would actually start peeping. And he started peeping at a very young age. It was nine or ten. Mm -hmm. He was leaving his house to actually go peep on uh, people, specifically older women at this time, but they were pretty much teenagers to the early 20s. Um, and he was looking in the windows. And this is something that's going to be, I'm going to bring up when I, in the book, some of the things that he started to do, uh, the sexualized behavior, even as a child. That's wild. So yeah. uh, interesting. So they adopt this kid and then they ignore him. And that's just, wow. Again, I'm sure that happens, probably happens more than we can uh, imagine, but that's that's just tragic. That's just sad. Uh, yes. you, you mentioned about his rejections. Uh, I think you said in his teenage years. Do you have anything specific on that? Uh, he, has, like, he had a girlfriend he was madly in love with, or he claims he was. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I actually broke up with him. And, you know, it's a part of, it's a part of growing up as you have that first rejection, that first heartbreak. Um, but I think this hit him harder than maybe it would with most people, mm -hmm. and especially with, 
you know, narcissistic personalities, you, get, you feel a rejection. It's almost like 10 times harder on them. They don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to deal with right. rejection the same way as a normal person can. So has he been officially diagnosed as a uh, sociopath or a narcissistic, or has he been diagnosed with any personality disorder? Yeah, so he's been diagnosed, I think it was um, psychopathic. There was something else. He's been officially diagnosed with antisocial, and mm -hmm. then his early years, he started to trick um, all the different psychologists when he was first in and out of jail, and he would actually pretend he was crazy. So when you actually ever took over his reports from every different psychologist, uh -huh. I mean, it's they diagnosed him with everything, and we went over each diagnosis, and he said, I was just pretending with that one, and that was that one. You know, it goes from psychotic to psychopathic, but no, he is a psychopath. That's what it you know, goes down to. It basically comes down to, okay. Yeah. So why did you choose him? And we'll get back to more of, of you know, the, the crime and, and what he told you. But why did you choose Lawrence Bittaker to talk to at first for this project you were doing, and then it just ended up, you just kept talking to him? Why did you pick him? You know, there wasn't really, I didn't really pick him, pick him. Um, I had read, you know, about their crimes, probably as a teenager myself, and it stuck with me. This mm -hmm. case just always stuck with me because it was so brutal. It was so savage. And, um, you know, it just stayed with me. Um, but it, I wouldn't say uh, I targeted or honed in onto Bittaker and Norris. It was actually just my one interview. I went in there um, mm -hmm. and he'd given me the body placements of Cindy and Andrea. And after he gave me the placement of where they were, I was just like, you know, this is what I'm going to do. I have to try to get a search done for these girls. Right. I'm going to go dig into this case. It kind of just became my mission. Like, I couldn't walk away. Oh, once no. I found, right. Yeah. There was no walking away or, at that point. So I got, um, I made him send me a copy of the police report, the police discovery, and then I went out and bought the trial transcripts, and I just started digging and tracking every single witness um, I can you know, associated with the case. Right. It, it, it is an amazing story. Uh, let's let's talk about the crimes. Um, horrific, terrible, uh, yeah. just uh, bone chilling. Can you give us kind of a brief synopsis of the, the two toolbox killers and what they did? Yeah. So they're pretty much known for they got the van that they called Murder Math. And what they did is they put a makeshift bed in the back of the van with a toolbox underneath it. They would um, either grab a girl, throw her in the van, or they would pick up a hitchhiker. Um, back in the 70s, that was really common. They would get the girls in the van, drive them up to the San Gabriel Mountains onto a fire road. You know, the fire roads are closed off mm -hmm. just really for the fire department. They would drive them up into the roads, and they would take turns raping them. And they would use tools, like the tools they brought in the toolbox, to torture them. You know, they used uh, sledgehammers, pliers, ice, ice picks, um, really, um, I mean, sick torture, beyond sick torture. Right. And they would finally kill the girls, and they would throw them off, like, roll them off those uh, cliffs in San Gabriel. Um, Jackie and Leah were two of the victims. They were recovered, partial bone remains. Uh, Cindy and Andrea were never recovered, and those were the two that gave me and their fifth victim was uh ledford and he they actually made an audio recording of oh, you know the rape torture oh uh, did they did they recover her yes okay. they actually put for some reason they put uh the net on somebody's front lawn because they wanted a reaction from the press and the police 
they put a what on a front lawn? Her body. Oh, they oh they put her. Oh, good yeah. lord, jeez. Yeah. That's terrible. Um, it is. I, I, again, you hear this and it feels like oh this got to be a movie. This isn't real. Right. It seems like when I describe it to people, I'm like oh it sounds like I'm describing a movie, mm-hmm. but no, it's it's actually all really happened and. You know, you always hear, like, you know, stay away from the van, but this is, like, a classic case of stay away from those vans. Don't walk alongside them ever. <laughs> you know, I, yeah. You never know who's going to open that door and just pull you right in. They're, it's, they're grooming up. That's why they call them. But we call them in, in uh, where I come from, serial killer vans. And, yes. yeah, I mean, we tease people that own these vans. Oh, you have a serial killer van. Good job. My, yeah. my husband, <laughs> when I first started dating him, now my ex, he had a serial killer van. And that was my first thought. Well, I didn't, didn't say my first thought. I don't think the name serial killer had come up yet. But my first thought was, oh, my God, you kidnapped somebody in this van. But it's true. Absolutely yeah. true. A lot harder to grab someone in a car than a van. So, everybody, yeah. be, remember, <laughs> be careful. Now, yeah. he and Norris, his partner, hooked up. And obviously, they fed off each other. Um, how did they get connected? Uh, they met in prison. Oh, no great. surprise there. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, they met in prison. and. Um, they had this little group inside of the prison where they would um, sit and talk about their sexual fantasies. And that's where Bittaker and Norris uh, found out they had the same sexual fantasy of, you know, kidnapping and raping teenage girls. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as they talk about it, you know, it turned into a plan. And they happened to be released um, out of prison within months of each other. And then they bought the van. They went up to the fire roads and they, cut off the lock, the pick into the lock for the fire road and put their own lock onto the road. So, so I mean, there was months of planning before they even took their victims. Yeah. That is, that's just chilling. Uh, let's, let's go back now to you talking to, to Bitteker. How did you get him to tell you this information? I mean, that it's just amazing what he gave to you. Tell us yeah. about how that came about and what information he gave you exactly. So the information he gave exactly is the two girls' placement of where Andrea and Cindy are. Mm-hmm. And now Norris was the one who turned against Bittaker and turned state witness. Uh, so he actually was up there with the cops pointing to where the girls are. But what's really weird is Norris was not there when Bittaker killed Andrea Hall. Mm-hmm. Bittaker was up there alone with her. So I don't know why Norris was originally up there pointing to where he thinks, uh, you know, Andrea was placed. You know, he wasn't there when Bittaker killed her. Um, so that's a big reason I keep pushing for the second search, you know, mm-hmm. is because Norris wasn't there. It was all Bittaker. So when Bittakers were taking all these maps out and looking at everything, he's saying, Norris had no idea. It's over here. And Bittaker had said to me, you know, um, Norris was a mile off with Cindy. Mm-hmm. He goes on. Um, so she was actually much further down than actually what Norris had originally uh, told the police with the initial search in 1980. So that's the whole uh, thing we're trying to do with the search of the San Gabriel. Now, Bittaker also gave me the placement of where he put uh, the buried evidence. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a crazy story, but he actually got tipped off. The cops were coming, and he was able to put all the evidence into a bag in a van and drive away from his motel and actually dig a hole and bury it. And to this day, that evidence has never been recovered. Wow. Yeah. Do, do you think, is there a possibility that Bitteker was maybe toying with you? No, I 
everything he said, I went back to the DA, his DA. Mm-hmm. And so everything I was saying, I was like, check, back checking. Right. So everything's been, um, you know, proven correctly. You know, I've been mm-hmm. working with him and also the lead detective. You know, we've been going over every single little piece that Bitteker has said. You know, if he, there are some times he'll blame Norris. Um, but that's what I found a lot was, uh, he would blame shift onto Norris. That was like his big thing. But, you know, not with like the, um, parts of where the bodies were or the buried evidence. No, everything matches back checks up into the initial search and what Norris was saying originally, too. It's just, I'm so fascinated by what you have done and the fact that he was able to open up to you so for so much. And you interviewed him for quite a while. How long did these yeah. interviews go on? Um, let's see, it was five years total. Wow. Five years, yeah. That, that's crazy. And when did he start really uh revealing to you this this information now just to make it clear the bodies that where he told you they were buried they have not been found yet and you you said several times that's why you're pushing for another search and i can't imagine why they wouldn't do another search but yeah uh, yeah um well you know it's been oh god how long has it been 41 so it's 41 years now and you know the state of california has done the initial initial search back in 1980 so at this point um it's not that easy just to go to the state and be like we need hundreds of thousands of dollars to do another dig that's already been done mm-hmm. you know that aspect but right now uh, i am working with a production company with a network um and we're trying to get do a docuseries um everything's on hold because of the pandemic right, right. now um but yeah we want to turn the whole story into a docuseries so everybody actually can actually follow the investigation of, you know, it's not just Bittaker and Norris, you know, I found the sole survivor. I found so many girls, uh, teenagers that they actually preyed upon, you know, when they were out mm-hmm. and, you know, former cellmates of them. And we've all come together and we have like group chats, you know, we're very close. We're a unit. Oh, I wow. say to all the girls, you know, we're a survivor tribe. Um, yeah. So I really want everybody to see kind of that aspect of, the investigation part of this and all of us coming back together, you know, mm-hmm. played out on TV and in the docu-series. But then I also have, you know, the interviews with Bitteker. I have about, I think, eight hours of recorded interviews so people can actually get to hear it for themselves, my interviews with him. Well, uh, that that was actually going to be my very last question was, and, you know, what's next? Is it a, a documentary or a book? But um, <laughs> that's okay. We'll, ju- we'll, works. we'll yes. jump there. Well, that's good then because I was going to recommend it, but if the police wouldn't do a search, I'm sure you could get volunteers and, and people to donate money that you needed, but you you got that ready and it's going to be a docu-series and that's fantastic. Yeah. Have you ever thought about doing a podcast and releasing your audio, all of the audio in the podcast? Because I'm sure there's hundreds of hours, right? Oh, tons of hours. Yeah. Um, you know, everyone keeps saying, do you want to do a podcast? Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, probably in the future, you know, mm-hmm. after I get everything settled with the docu series and right. the book and everything, you know, I'll consider it. Yeah, I think um, that would be great. Yeah. Just yeah. To, to get everything out there and, and people can see what you've gone through. Because like you said, it's been over five years and it's, I would assume, have pretty much consumed your life. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's every day. I mean, literally every day. Yeah. And uh, like you've made lifelong friends. And uh, again, it's just hard for people to comprehend how much work went into this. I mean, this interview is going to be anywhere from 30, 45 to an hour uh, minutes. And you can't put in to that short a time the work and the 
blood, sweat, and tears that went into this? Did you ever get really discouraged and think, I want to give up. I'm done. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're going like 15-hour days. I mean, because once you start digging, you can't stop digging. And then, you know, I would call up uh, one of the survivors, and I would just hear their tears and how brutally this affected them. And, you know, it takes an emotional toll on yourself, you know. And um, and then even working with Bideker, you know, we had um, so many uh, emotional conversations, and then you're having it with all the witnesses. You're so emotionally involved with everybody, mm-hmm. and it's hard. It is, like, mentally, it is exhausting. But, you know, and then when I finally, you know, reached out to Andrea's family and I finally got a hold of Andrea's sister and uh, we get on the phone and I just remember hearing her sobbing and I'm sobbing. Mm. And she just goes, you know, we've always had hope. We've never given up hope of bringing her home. And she's she's crying and she's saying thank you. And I'm like, don't thank me. And I'm crying. And, you know, I anytime I have a bad day and I'm like, this is so much work, it's too, you know, it's so emotional. Mm-hmm. You know, I always think back to that conversation with Andrea's sister. And I was like, you have to keep going. Mm-hmm. You know, this is why you're doing this. And this is why you need to push yourself to keep going. Exactly. To, to do it. Yeah. Well, we talked a little bit about his childhood and, and leading up to his behaviors. And did he ever really reveal why? Why he wanted why, why this was such a, a, a sexual gratification for him. Did you get deep inside his head like that? Yeah. A lot of it went back to his uh, first girlfriend and, you know, the animosity towards his mother. Those are the those were the two. I mean, you hear that, and it's so classic serial killer. Yes. But it, it's very true, you know, that mother who gave him up for adoption. And, by the way, his birth father was also very violent. Um so I don't know if that also plays, you know, genetics play a factor into it as well. Um, yeah, but, it, you know, it really was that rejection from the mother. And she went on to have uh, four more children that she kept afterwards. And we had long discussions about that. And I actually read something from the daughter she kept. And she said her upbringing was horrible. The mother was always partying, going out. And I would actually said to Bideker, I said, you actually probably had a better life that she gave you up. Mm-hmm. And he had always said, no, no, if I was with my mother, I would have had a better life. So, you know, that, you know, <laughs> always stayed with him. He always thought like he needed that mother's love. And I think that's, that's a huge factor in why he had turned so sadistic in his crimes and torturing these girls. You know, he had those mom issues and then he had, you know, this hard rejection from his first love, first girlfriend, mm-hmm. you know, in his high school years that stayed with him his whole life too. Two questions, because if I don't ask both of them at the same time, I will forget because my mind just it just goes. <laughs> Once it go, goes <laughs> in my mind, I don't ask it. It's gone. Um, he so he is classic serial killer, mother and rejection issues. Yeah. Uh, have you he he obviously had this idealized version of his uh, mother, like somehow that would be different. You uh-huh. say you talked to or somebody contacted his sister who grew up with his biological mother said she was always partying first question did you uh talk to any of his other siblings and have you talked to his girlfriend that was reject that rejected him um not the siblings uh you know i just didn't even put them on my list to contact because mm-hmm. he didn't grow up with them they never met him so i just was like and i actually <laughs> i'm looking up 150 witnesses right now right so i'm like i'm not even gonna put siblings that never knew him onto you know, right. 150 no. people. Makes sense. Already. Right. Um, but yes, I have, 
actually, ironically, I have tracked down the first girlfriend, and it was last week. Um, but I promised her I would never reveal her name. But right. yeah, we talked, and uh, there a lot's going to be revealed with what she actually told me too coming up. Just a teeny, just a teeny, incy beansy little, little little preview. detail of what she said. Yes, please. Um, you know, it's it's almost literally like the Hollywood version of how you would think of a serial killer when you go back and talk to the first girlfriend. And mm-hmm. There was different things that stood out to her, you know, too, and uh, weird behaviors he did with her as well. She was bothered by it, and yeah, and yeah. So there is a lot more to that story, and we will definitely be wait. Trust me, you have to tell us when this docu series comes out. Oh, because definitely. we will be all over it, okay? And and, and tell them we'll buy the the products that the sponsors sell because we want to we want to know this information. So oh, definitely, <laughs> anyway, yeah. So I'm glad you were able to uh, to track her down because she is such a huge part, huge piece. Always the first rejection for any serial killer. You always want to go back to that, and that's where you're going to find the most information too. Is that first rejection? Yeah, I just I want to make a comment. And I'd like you to comment on it too. Why is it? That somebody can grow up with the, uh, you know, the exact same household and all types of rejection, horrible things happen to them, and they turn out to be a pillar of society because they know how not to treat people, and then somebody turns out to be like Bitteker, and they can have, you know, violent uh, sexual assaults, all kinds of things, and they don't turn out to be serial killers. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's actually like, you know, that's a question everybody wants to know. What is that X factor Mm -hmm. in everything? And, you know, I think, I don't think it's one specific thing. I think it's, you know, the environment, the socio-economical aspects, I think it's the psychological aspects, you know, and then you look at uh, whether or not they do have, you know, antisocial personality present, are they, you know, a sadistic personality present? You know, there's so many different little aspects um, you have to look at. It's not just one thing. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's coping skills, too. you got to look at someone's coping, coping skills and how they handle different things. Mm-hmm. Every human is different. Every killer is different. So, you know, I think it's a multitude of many different aspects coming into play that actually can form, like, the perfect storm. Right. And, and it's, it's, just that, into, yeah. it's just that one person, even, they, even though they may have grown up in the same household with you know, four other brothers or whatever, and they had the same experience, something happened, like you said, the X factor, something happened to that one kid that made that happen. That is, to me, that's, like you said, the one thing everybody wants to know, the most fascinating aspect of studying serial killers. Uh, When did he start killing? Did he start killing animals in his childhood? When did his compulsion start? Did he tell you about that? Yes. Um, I can't reveal his first kill. But I can. T- but he didn't um, kill animals um, in his childhood. Uh, he did have fire starting. Uh, one thing present. He didn't wet the bed. He didn't uh, torture animals. But yeah, he started fires at a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's uh, he started. Yeah, I'll leave that for the docu series. But uh, I'll for when his first kill actually happened. Okay. Well, yeah, that that's fine. Yeah. But it wasn't. It wasn't like he turned it. 25 and went well I'm going to be a serial killer no he obviously had some sexual weird things yeah, going no, it on started early. yeah it started very early yeah oh, and again not a surprise there at all okay talking to all these guys and this wasn't the only serial killer you talked to as you mentioned in the beginning you had a, had a big research project and we'll get into that yeah. in just a second but talking to Bitteker as as much as you did and then add to it the other serial killers didn't that affect you 
I mean, uh, yeah, of course. Like when you're hearing it, especially when you're, you know, sitting down in person and hearing it firsthand, it is so different than people imagine, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, you're not watching it on TV. You're sitting there face-to-face -face looking them right in the eye. And you're hearing, like, you know, these horrific, horrific, you know, crimes firsthand. Mm -hmm. it, it's, um, it does take a toll. Um, but I would say, you know, I handle it pretty well. You know, I dive into my friends and my family. I do things to decompress and, you know, keep a very level head as I go. Mm -hmm. um, but I never had uh, nightmares with any of the other guys. Uh, Bidifer and Norris were the first ones ever I had nightmares from. And I remember thinking, I was like, okay, well, they've obviously <laughs> affected me, um, you know, on a different level. But I yes. think it's because I was going so deep into their case and getting to know every single person on the case that it really did, you know, I got emotionally involved in it. Um, Oh, sorry. Are we oh, no, something? no. Go right ahead. I was just taking a breath, getting ready for my, my next big next question. question. But go, no, no with, please continue. With the other guys, I have not had any nightmares from. And, um, you know, I just really uh, check in with myself mentally to make sure I'm not getting burnt out, you know, doing mm -hmm. this type of work. We're talking with Laura Brand. Laura Brand has such an amazing story to tell. And she has... Basically, we've we've given her the name the serial killer whisperer because she has interviewed so many serial killers, but a pair in particularly and one in particularly, Lawrence Bittaker, part of the Toolbox Killers, and his co-defendant Roy Norris. And Laura, in case she just joined us, got very close or at least interviewed Lawrence Bittaker much, much more than the all the other uh, people she interviewed. But Bittaker did have his partner which was Roy Norris. How close did you get to him? I got pretty close to Norris as well. He was actually, you know, he didn't give me any trouble in the beginning. He mm -hmm. was open. He was friendly. He answered all the questions I had. Um, the problem with Norris, though, that I found was he was not being honest about the crimes and what happened and what occurred. He was saying that he was on drugs and he was blacked out during it, which oh, is a total lie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I've heard the, you know, recorded stuff that he's given to the police about what actually happened. And he remembers every detail perfectly of the crimes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he, that was a big block I had with Norris that I kept having to try to work around. And that was actually something Bittaker didn't do. He was actually very open and honest about the crimes. So, you know, that's why I actually honed in a little bit more towards Bittaker. But, um, no, I did get very close to Norris as well. And you say Norris did turn against Bittaker, right? Yeah, yeah. And why was that? Was it because Bittaker was talking more to you? I mean, what was the situation? Do you oh, know? no. Um, so Norris turned uh, against uh, Bittaker, like, when they were first arrested. Mm -hmm. So they knew, you know, oh, okay. five beautiful girls are going to be, of course, a death penalty case. Right. So Norris had said, you know, if you take uh, away the death penalty for me, I'll turn state witness and I'll, you know, testify against him. So that was the deal. And Norris turned uh, state witness for the DA. Got it. Okay. So do you keep in contact? And, and now we're going to get into your, in fact, I'm going to, I'm going to save that message for the end. Let's talk about why you went to interview uh, Norris and Bittaker at the very beginning, why this all started. Tell us about this project, what's going on with it, and, and what's happening now. So I'm doing a collective study, very similar when you hear collective study of what you see on Mindhunter. Mm -hmm. um, so right now, um, I actually took a two-year break because I wanted to dive into Benefit Norris 
Uh, right now, I've just partnered with um, Dr. White. And what we're going to do is I've collected all the data. I'm still collecting some more data from the guys. Mm -hmm. Once that's all settled, we have all the data in, we're going to actually develop a scale. And the scale is going to be able to measure the answers of the collective study that these guys have given. And we're going to analyze all the data and findings and publish it as, you know, scientific research in the field of forensic psychology. That will be a gold mine. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, Wow. And how long you've been working on it, this particular study for how long six years wow yeah just amazing oh i cannot wait i've got to have you back on and dr white when (laughs) when this is released because this is this is very exciting because again this is my little soapbox issue that i have we need to find out why these people are turned into monsters and if we can find out get closer even find out that x factor then we can learn how to prevent it you know and i i don't know about you but so many i've had to deal with so many people that say oh you just want to coddle the criminal and blah blah no i don't you know it's not about not getting enough hugs as a child it's something much deeper than that much deeper and you're right it's not about coddling the criminal it's about going in you know, really digging into their psychopathy and really digging to get those answers out. You know, nothing's going to be solved or nothing's going to be fixed and prevented unless we're going in and doing this type of work. Exactly. And that's what people need to remember. This type of work could easily prevent somebody you know and love from being murdered if we can stop creating monsters. And that's what we keep doing over and over and over is creating these monsters. And Again, got to find out why before we can fix it. Like you said, that's why I'm so excited about your work. This is absolutely fantastic. So yeah, I really hope it, you know, you know, sheds a light on the darkness, and I hope we can, you know, take away a lot of findings, you know, for the field, and really start to work on, you know, trying to prevent this or trying to find the cause and, you know, that X factor, <laughs> you know, within these guys. Right, and I think it could be a lot of, or not a lot, but maybe several different things. Not right. just one particular thing, but then again, how do you stop an abusive mother who has a baby and is abusive? Do you, I mean, we pretty much have to have cameras in there, you know, right. in their houses. And I, again, I don't know what the answers are, but I do know we need to know why before yeah. we can do anything else. So, oh, you know, kudos 100%. to you to, for doing this. This is this is incredible. Oh, so, thank you. <laughs> how many serial killers have you interviewed by now? Ah, uh, it's. It's over 50, but I'd have to count. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> make a list, but yeah, it's, it's over about 50 at this point now. But was Bitteker the only one that had your cell phone number? Oh, no. They, I give it out to everyone. Oh, wow. Boy, yeah. I bet you were popular. I yes. bet. Yeah, I bet <laughs> that cell phone. The phone just does not suffer. <laughs> I bet that cell phone's rocking. You know, I mean, they're in prison yeah. and they want to talk to a nice woman. I bet they're just, yeah, you know, yeah. so. Yeah, well, good for you for being able to do that for as long as you've been doing. Because, like you said, you got to get into their minds to figure out exactly what's going and, you on. You know, I re- I have a lot of the interviews also recorded too, and I, you know, like you said about the podcast, I do want to release them for everybody to actually hear it firsthand. You know, mm-hmm. the work that I'm doing and actually hear, you know, for their in, you know, them talking and actually, you know, answering these hard questions. And I do want to get it out there so. Right. Everybody can actually hear for themselves these guys and my interviews with them. Uh, I know the information that Bideker gave you, you you turned over to the authorities pretty fast because yeah. you wanted to find to find uh, these these victims and bring them home. 
have any other serial killers revealed anything to you that you've been able to turn over to the authorities? Um, you know, there's two other guys in San Quentin um, have given me a lot of information for, about their uh, Jane Doe's. They have a, each one has a Jane Doe. Mm -hmm. And um, so they've given me all the information on her, uh, each one of their victims. So I'm actually doing the work right now trying to, you know, comb through NamUs. And, you know, this is actually where you guys would be a big help. <laughs> Anything. <laughs> you know, trying to identify who these girls are, the two Jane Doe's. Just, you know what, uh, if you want to get with me, I can uh, put you in touch with our, our main guy. And there's so many great people on the forum that do that. Uh, his name is Carl Kay and, and the people that work I know with Carl, him. actually. Oh, okay, That's there you so go. That's so funny. Yeah, he's been helping me out with the Bitteker Norris. But, yeah, um, he's been uh, amazing. He's actually gone up to San Gabriel Mountains and taken videos and pictures for me. He's oh, been so great. He's a great guy. And he's I am yeah. so grateful. Well, we're all grateful that he and the people that work right alongside with him are on websites. Yes. And again, they just do this because they want to help. They don't get money or fame or anything out of it. I know. You know? That's what, I just love it. Like, yeah, I, I do don't too. think people realize these people on your site, you know, they're not being paid. They're no. doing it out of the goodness of their heart to actually help people and they, their families. They I are. I think it's so incredible that people are actually doing this. It's really great. They, they absolutely are. Well, I'll tell you what. Can you give us just any more information about your docu-series or what you have next in your life? Or what are you doing tomorrow? I mean, just give us kind of an out. <laughs> you know, you know, tonight uh, and tomorrow, I'm yeah. still tracking down everybody on the case. Okay. I still have a ton of witnesses to go. Um, and, you know, every because of the pandemic, I don't have any updates of or dates for anybody yet. But mm -hmm. you can follow me on Instagram. My name is Nancy Drew, uh, 187 And I'll be, you know, posting updates for the book, um, the study, and the docu-series, uh, as, you know, as I get the information of when stuff is going to start to happen, I'll be putting it up on Instagram. Nancy Drew 187. Yes. Okay, I will definitely get that out to people. Thank you so much, Laura Brand. You are really an incredible woman. I admire you greatly, and I'm sure when the study comes out and the docu-series come out, you're going to have a uh, millions of admirers so wow. thank you very much thank you much. so much and thank you for all the work that you're doing my, too hey, it's incredible my pleasure i put my feet up on the table and i read and i go go people go and they <laughs> they do all the work and i applaud them so hey yes. thank you so much laura we'll talk to you soon okay definitely take care bye-bye until we meet again my darling true crime angels trisha griffith saying so long it's web radio podcast and we'll see you again soon bye-bye now don't forget Patreon.com if you want to support Web Sleuth. Five bucks a month. Great way to listen for extra content. Bye-bye.